0: Have ever been accused of overdoing anything, the accusation would hold water. Yes. That was maybe a little bit overkill to illustrate this point, but I had fun. So hopefully you guys did. Hopefully that battle is settled once and for all. <laughs> yeah, and that was the battle to end all battles right there. All right, take out your study sheets. (laughs) This This rule. I didn't print to get his arms back. <laughs> it's not supposed to make logical sense. So, if the video did not illustrate it, today's rule of Bible study that we've been covering, uh, there's 15 rules or keys to understand and unlock the Bible, and this week is apparent contradictions. And the rule states this, the top of the outline, there are no contradictions in the Bible. None. If you find an apparent contradiction, always give the Bible... The benefit of the doubt. Does anybody know what Hebrews 4.12 says? For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Exactly. See, whenever there's a contradiction, do you guys ever break down that word contradiction? It's comprised of two words, contra and diction. Well, diction should be easy. What is that? Speech. Words. Words. You know what contra means? It means to come against. It means a fight, a battle. Whenever there is a battle between two opposing sides, you need to resolve it using a sword. Not a foam one, a real one. The Bible. The Bible speaks for itself. Let the Bible interpret itself. It will work out any kind of contradiction that you might find. Look at the key verses that are on the your outline there in the intro. How do we know this to be true? How do we know the Bible contains no contradictions? Because God said it. Titus 1, 2. He says, In hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Somebody remind me again. What does Romans ten seventeen say about how we get faith? And hearing by the Word Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. It's the substance of things hoped for. There's substance to your faith, or at least there should be. In verse 6, we looked at this last Wednesday. But without faith, it is what? Impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a... And you might want to underline this last part. He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. The question you need to ask yourself is Am I diligently seeking the Lord? Do I diligently search the Bible to know Him more? Or do I just do it as a check mark of my Christian walk? Did I pray today? Check. Did I not sin today? Well, did I not sin big today? Check. All right, I'm doing good. Did I read my chapter today? Check. Most Christians, they walk around like that. And that's not how God designed Christianity to be whatsoever. And look at John 16, 12. Jesus says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. There might be things in the Bible that you come across, you're like, I don't get it. This doesn't seem like it makes sense. Well, maybe it's because you're not mature enough to handle what it is that He's actually saying to you. That doesn't make it a contradiction. It just means that you need to grow in your faith. And that comes through diligently seeking Him. Alright, so important concepts about this rule of Bible study and how it applies to your reading and studying. Checkmark. Believing there are no contradictions can only be done through faith. That every word in the Bible is divinely inspired and kept free from error by God. We looked at these passages before. Psalm 12 talks about how God preserved His word. It's been purified through refining fire. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says that every word of God is what? Pure. That means holy. It means without blemish. It means without spot. It's perfect. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable. You stand to gain from the word of God, all of the word of God. When you believe these verses, and you believe the verses we already looked at in the above, that God is the way, the truth, and the life, and that He does not lie, and He's given us His Word, and it's free from error. When you approach the Bible believing that, the apparent contradictions will work themselves out. And we'll see that in a little bit. Those that are willing to trust God, trust His words, and study His words, or, hold on, those that are willing to trust God, Trust his words and study his words, sorry, we'll find that all parent contradictions are able to be resolved. Matthew twenty four, thirty-five. Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. In other words, if it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. There's no error in it. It's going to be here for all of eternity, so what's in here must be what God wanted us to know and to see. John 10, 35. This is a passage you have to look at the context to understand. But he's saying, if they called them, or if he called them gods, and whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. Again, context to understand what's more going on here. But focus on the second half of that passage there. The scripture cannot be broken. So if anybody comes to you in school, or if your teachers, if you ever hear any of your teachers, especially your college professors, because college professors don't give a rip, high school teachers are a little bit more forgiving because they realize they might have a scandal on their hands if they start telling you guys things like, oh, there's errors in your Bible. The Bible contradicts itself. College professors, when they have tenure, they don't care. They'll just say it flippantly, and they don't give a rip what you try to tell them. You just need to know in your heart and mind, you need to have it resolved that God's Word, the Scripture, cannot be broken. It can't be broken. It doesn't need to be fixed because there's no errors in it, even if they tell you that. And lastly... 1 Peter 1.23 says that you and I, if you're in here, and you have been born again, you have trusted Christ as, as Savior, it's not from your own works, it's not of corruptible seed, but of what? Incorruptible. What is that incorruptible seed? By the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So as you see from these passages again and again and again, the Bible's making it very clear that this is a perfect, purified, spotless, incorruptible book. So if somebody comes and says that there are errors in them, you really want to know how to simply resolve this issue without even looking at the examples we're going to go to in a little bit? You just look them back straight in the eye, and you say, show me. Because nine times out of ten they won't be able to produce one example of where the Bible contradicts itself. Nine times out of ten. They just say that because they heard someone smarter than them say that, and they took their word for it, and now they think they have one over on you, and so now they're trying to get you to bend to their will and to get you to doubt your faith. But really, when you ask them and you challenge them on it, they won't be able to provide you one single instance of where the Bible contradicts itself. They're just saying it. Especially when you make your case like, oh, really, man, I'm staking my entire eternity upon this incorruptible word of God that I believe to be faultless and perfect and infallible. Can you please show me? And then watch them squirm. Oh, there's no greater feeling. Not true, but you get it. All right. Next bullet point. Apparent contradictions and to that point give skeptics a reason to believe their own lies and give faithful believers further confidence to remain faithful to the Lord and to His words. Out of curiosity, can anybody tell me, why did God write parables? What was the point of the parables? Why did Jesus start speaking in parables in the Gospels, Jack? So that people could easily understand the point He was making. Half true. It's good, though. You got the one half right. The second half, for those who thought they already knew the Bible and were self-righteous and didn't give a rip for what Jesus was saying, He purposely spoke in parables to confuse them. In other words, you guys know that phrase that we say, and we even had a VBS one year called, ears to hear? Jesus says, if any man have ears to hear, let him hear. That's your point, Jack. Man, if you have a willing heart and you're willing to come to this book, and believe it by faith, that there's no errors in it, and God is right and let every man be a liar, yeah, he'll reveal deeper truth to you. But to those who already have their minds made up and are already self-righteous in their heart, nope, it's done. It's done for them. Matthew 13, 13, this is what Jesus said. Therefore speak I to them in parables. And now look how he says it. Don't get caught up in the words here. Because they, seeing, see not. See not. In other words, they say they see. They say they have the the perspective and perception of Scripture, but they don't. And hearing, so they say, they hear not. (laughs) Neither do they understand. So just confuse the the Pharisees, the religious experts of their day and age, all the more so. Uh, Turn over to Ezekiel chapter 14. You guys got to see this. I understand that uh, most of you, by and large in here, would not fall into this skeptical line of reasoning that many people do. But understand, there are a lot of people in Christianity today who went off to Bible college, and even their Bible professors told them things about their errors in their Bible, and they can't trust it because they don't have access to the original manuscripts, or you as a student, you didn't study the original Hebrew or the original Koine Greek in order to be able to understand the transcripts and the manuscripts and all of that. So how could you possibly understand the Bible? There's a lot of this stuff going on in Christianity today. So I understand that this passage we're about to read, it might not apply to you as far as an atheistic or an agnostic standpoint of being a skeptic towards the Bible, but all scripture is profitable. And so even though this passage might not apply to you in that regard, this passage still scares the daylights out of me. Look at verse 1, Ezekiel 14. Then came certain of the elders of Israel unto me, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, so God is speaking to Ezekiel. And he says, Son of man, these men, and who are the men? In verse 1, context? Elders of Israel the pastors and the leaders and the shepherds of Israel back in their day. These men, God is saying, verse 3, have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. And here's what God asks Ezekiel, the real man of God. Should I be inquired of at all by them? In other words... The religious leaders, the Christians, so to speak, of their day, came to God with their minds already made up. Came to God with a prayer request, but they already knew what they were going to do, regardless of how God answered the prayer request or not. Their mind was already made up. They were going to go to this place. They were going to do this as a career. They were going to date this person. Who cares what God's answer is? It's already set up in my heart. Therefore, verse 4, Speak unto them, God's telling Ezekiel, here's what you say. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and putteth the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols. You know what this is saying? Be careful what you wish for. You have something set up in your heart and your mind of what you're going to do, regardless of what God thinks, He just might answer your prayer according to what you want. Yikes. Now again, in the context of what we're talking about here, people who think that are skeptical towards the Bible, God's going to let them have it. He's going to let them believe their lie as they choose to. But as it applies to you guys, a lot of things we've been talking about on Wednesdays and Sundays, about future events, future things that you guys have coming up, you better make sure that whenever you come to God and ask Him, God, what do you want from me? Make sure you don't already have your mind made up of what you're going to do. Because He just might answer it, but it's never what He intended for you. But your mind was already made up, and you don't really care what He had to say, and so He's going to give it to you. Most Christians go through their entire lives living with the pain and the consequences of their decisions, and they don't even realize that it was probably because of this verse right here, this passage right here, that God is warning them to. So I'm warning you guys, be careful. When you come to God, any request you have should always be ended with, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. That's what Christ prayed after He asked God the Father to not let the suffering of the cross come upon Him. Not my will, but thine be done. So always be willing to change what you believe when it goes against what you've been taught and make sure you don't have your own God set up in your heart because you will end up justifying your beliefs based upon that. All right, third bullet point. Check out Isaiah 29 later. That's a great passage. We know the time for it. When a person says they cannot believe the Bible because of contradictions, they most likely will not be able to prove it, as I already said. So just ask them. But in case of that 1 out of 10, that is, you better be ready to give an answer. A passage that goes perfectly hand-in-hand with studying your Bible, 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify, set apart your time, set apart your effort, set apart your talents, set apart your study time, not just for homework, but for studying the Word of God. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. If somebody does present a contradiction to you in the Bible and you ask them to show you, you better be ready to have the answer down. You better be able to show them of the reason of the hope that is in you. Which is why we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at these examples today. And you guys are going to do it. So, at this time, we have a couple examples here. And you're going to spend the next 15 minutes... In your groups, going over these passages, whatever you can't get through, we'll get back to here at 9.50. But break up in groups of three, four, it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to have you guys uh, do threes like, or have it be as stringent as last couple weeks. Break up in whatever groups you guys want. Look at some of these passages. It's usually only two passages. And look and see, what's the contradiction here and how do we resolve it? Now, one thing to keep in mind, and I'll give you guys a couple pointers. Have your phones out Use whatever Bible study tools that you have to help you to look at these things. Try a cross-referencing tool. Look up a particular word that might be linked between the two verses that bring up the contradiction. And see how God uses that word elsewhere. Spend some time looking at these things. Use whatever tools at your disposal. And come up with the resolution. Any questions? Alright, let's do it to it. Let me ask you guys, how'd you do? Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty rough, huh? Yes, sir. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to mention on this here before we dive into some of these. Be thankful that when it comes to apparent contradictions, most skeptics have no idea where these contradictions are in the Bible. Number two, let that give you the motivation to want to study even more so so that you can be ready to give an answer to any man and every man that asketh the reason of the hope that is in you. But the one thing I did forget to mention, I, I kind of, before we did this whole thing, gave you, some, uh, you know, some pointers to look into. One of the things is, and Caleb, you brought it up with one of the ones you helped the team with. With apparent contradictions, you kind of have to work out and utilize some of the other rules of Bible study that we've been talking about. One simple way to figure out one of the, the contradictions is just by paying attention to every single word in one passage. And it gave you the answer right there but the other thing how did it make you guys feel when you were going through these and you were either not getting them all I, I kind of already saw from the looks on some of your faces but let's just have it out how did you guys feel? huh? some of them uh, never no, no. no, what? no, I, I'm asking a question how did you feel? I felt like some of the contradictions weren't contradictions and so how did that make you feel? because they actually were contradictions but were you oh, yay, goody, goody no, how did you feel? Frustrated? Yeah, there you go. Thank you. I'm, I'm trying to save time here, Caleb. Anybody else feel frustrated? Anybody else feel like maybe a little bit aggravated or like, oh, this doesn't make any sense? Or how do I, from looking at these passages, how do I figure this out? Does it make sense? Did anybody else feel that way? Okay, I see some head nodding and I saw some other frustrated looks on people's faces. You know what's required? what we already went through on our study sheet. Coming to the Bible and trusting. You know what is presented with an element of trust? Fear. It's funny, this was just recorded on Heather's phone yesterday. I didn't plan on utilizing it, but uh, as I saw some of you guys, I'm like, huh, yeah. That's what trust involves. And that's what I was teaching Wyatt and Ryder to do this, to jump off, With their eyes closed, and to trust that daddy was going to catch them. That's literally what faith is. That's literally what trust entails. I don't know what's gonna happen, but I'm trusting that what my father tells me, he's going to do. And so when you come to the Bible and you trust that God has put every word in here, and that there's no mistakes, that he does not lie, that it is without error, there's a little bit of hesitation. There's a little bit of angst and frustration. That means you're not trusting. You need to enjoy it. You need to relax and have fun and come to the Bible believing that every word's supposed to be in here. Corey wouldn't do this to try to trick us. So there's obviously contradictions here and there. Obviously work themselves out. Maybe I'm just in my head too much overthinking the situation. Which honestly, a lot of you guys do a lot with issues of life. Stop overthinking things. Trust God by faith. Take the leap and relax. It'll all work out. So, first one. What'd you guys get? When it says says about eight days. One passage says about eight days, and the other passage says what? Six. After six. What's after six and about eight days? Seven. Seven. Everybody else get that? That's how you resolve that. Believe it or not, there are actual people who they can't rectify the two. And it's just right there. Again, you have to pay attention to every word. All right. Uh, I'm going to come back to First Kings chapter six. Let's go down to Numbers 23 because that one is a little tricky. Numbers 23:19 and Genesis 6, 6. First off, what's the contradiction there? Hmm. God and the and Yeah. So how do you resolve it? It's not. How do you guys define repent? It's a change of mind. It's a it's a, a change of your mind that you were thinking this way and now you're thinking that way. But again, pay attention to every word that shows up in the verses. Now in Genesis 6, it, it didn't say that God, He changed His mind. He wished He never made man. But what does it say specifically? That He was what? Anybody have those passages open? Mm-hmm. Grieved. Grieved. Who said it? Good job. He was grieved. When he repented, he was full of regret and grief. It doesn't say that he wishes he changed his mind about making man. No. He was just full of grief and sorrow, and he had regret. It's not saying he wished he never made man. That's how you work that out. You see? Yeah, could you really figure that out just by going to those two passages? Well, yes, but not if you're full of angst and anxiety and not trusting in it. It's a little bit harder to see those things. A little bit harder to see clearly when you're so when you have the test of anxiety, like some of you guys had when we were going through these. All right, Genesis 22.1 one and James 1, 13. Curious to know who got this one. So James. One thirteen says that we tempt ourselves. Temptation comes from our own lust. We go away. Wait a second. What does Genesis twenty-two one say? Oh yeah, and it came to pass after those things that God did tempt Abraham, and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. Wow, God tempted Abraham. James 1.13 doesn't talk about that. It says that God doesn't tempt us. We become tempted when we go and pursue after our own lusts. So how can you reconcile the two contradictions? Did anybody use any Bible study tools for this one? Because it's kind of how you figure it out. But did you figure it out? What? How did you resolve it? I just Different definition of it's not, like so we've done this before. Genesis 22. This is Blue Letter Bible app. And if you guys have this on your phone, again, Android, sorry, I'm not sure if it's the same exact way, but if you just click on a verse, and you go to cross-references, Man, this gives you a whole slew of verses that have to do with this particular verse. And you see in Genesis 22-1 it says, And God did tempt Abraham. And you could, if you had the time, read through all of these passages that are listed here. Or your eyes could just try to skim through to passages that you know are very similar. And for me, when I look at this, I stumble across, oh, Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith chapter. And what does Hebrews eleven seventeen say? I don't know if you guys can see that or not, can you? In the back. Abraham when he was tired, offered up no, not when he was tired. That's tried. the key word. You better get it right. Tried now see, in Genesis 22-1, it says that God tempted him. God tempted Abraham in Genesis 22-1. Well, here in Hebrews eleven seventeen, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, another rule of Bible study we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, we see that tested and tried, or tempted and tried, are synonymous terms. See, when God tempted Abraham in Genesis 22, He wasn't actually trying to, Oh, you're going to kill your son? You're going to kill your boy? Do it. You want to do it. Kill your son. He wasn't doing it like that, like we think about tempt. No. He was trying him. He was testing Abraham. That's what He was doing there. All right. So you guys got this. It's not too bad. 2 Samuel 24.1. In First Chronicles 21, one. one passage says Satan tempted David to number the people. The other passage says that God got David to number Israel. Which is it? Anybody get that one? Did you have it, Caleb? Not a good enough <laughs> answer means he's embarrassed by his answer. What did we look at in Ezekiel? The Ezekiel passage. If you come to God with your heart already made up, or as that passage actually put it, you have idols in your heart, as those elders of Israel did, God will give you what you ask for. God will answer you according to the idols you've set up in your heart. So yes, sometimes God uses evil. And in this case, God even uses Satan and allows Satan to punish us when we're in rebellion, which is what Israel was in that time in their life, in their nation's history. So yes, God was the factor behind it, but He used Satan in order to accomplish His will for that. All right. See, some of these, they do take just a little bit of thinking outside the box. Look at the passage, know that there's no contradiction there, relax, and just think about it for a little bit. And it becomes apparent. But others, you've got to fight with your sword in order to figure it out. All right, Isaiah 61 and Luke 4. Obviously, in Luke 4, Jesus himself is quoting Isaiah 61, but he does it a little differently. Well, if every word of God is pure and there are no errors or mistakes in the Bible, how is it that Jesus misquoted Isaiah? This is one where you might have to think outside the box a little bit. Anybody get that? Anybody write down? Anybody get that far? Alright. Simple, logical question. What language is the Old Testament written in? What uh, language is the New Testament written in? Greek. So what you guys are reading in your English Bible in Isaiah is a Hebrew passage that's been translated into English. What you're reading in Luke is a Hebrew passage that was written down in a Greek manuscript that was then translated into English. You guys any take anybody in here take a foreign language in school? Is it always a like for like comparison when you do a translation? No. Same thing with that one. See again, think a little bit outside the box, but it's all right there. First Kings 8 and Genesis 6 was Noah perfect? What was AJ? His bloodline, his lineage because what was going on in Genesis 6? because context is key. Another rule of Bible study sons of God, these angelic beings were coming down and were completely distorting the bloodline. Not Noah's bloodline. His lineage and his genealogy was perfect. Everything else outside of that, no one's perfect. And last, 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. Oh, stink. That one is the hardest one. I I just realized I put, I forgot I added that one on here. Alright, so let me ask you guys this one. This one is, uh, this was my add-on and I knew it was going to be A little tricky. Does anybody here have a Bible that has dates in it, like in your margins? That's what will help you. No. Does anybody even realize? Okay, maybe not. All right. So all well, there's two things on this. You don't you don't necessarily need the dates in order to figure it out. Because there is, uh, in the way, the wording of this passage, it kind of does help with that. Um, But there are study tools. There's one guy whose name is James Usher, U-S-S-H-E-R, if you guys want to write that down. He's our chronologist that we go to for Bible study. It's another Bible study tool. We don't use him that often, but man, did he sure help me out to figure out this apparent contradiction. But what's the contradiction state between these two passages here? One verse says after 40 years, but what does 1 Kings 2 say? Uh, it says uh, that David reigned seven years and Hebron, and the other 33 in Jerusalem. So he only reigned for 40 years total. Now in 2 Samuel chapter 15, this is Absalom's revolt. Absalom, David's son, revolting against David while David was king. And as you read that, it sounds as though 40 years after Absalom took over. And then the whole thing where David gets the throne back, that's a contradiction because David didn't reign anywhere beyond the 40 years. And so again, if you were to look at the, if you had Bibles with dates in them, or if you had a chronologist you could look at, uh, the approximate year that this took place was anywhere from 1021 to 1023 BC. So all you would do is just look what happened in the Bible 40 years before that. And you know what you'll find? 1 Samuel 16 and 1 Samuel 18, it's David when he was anointed after killing Goliath, he was anointed by Samuel to take over for Saul, but David did, wasn't king immediately after that, was he? No. It took him a couple other years before he actually became king to reign for the 40 years. And 1 Samuel 18 says that that was when the people fell in love with him. They realized that he was going to be the one who led the way. He was going to be the man that they followed. That just so happened to take place around 1060 B.C., which is 40 years before the events of 2 Samuel 15. But even if you didn't have a chronology to look at that, you know how you figure that out? All it said in the passage of 2 Samuel 15 is, after 40 years. It doesn't say from when. If you just look at the Bible and see what it says, and in some cases, what it does not say... That also will help you figure out the apparent contradictions. Dang it, I should have led with that one. That one was a little tricky. I forgot I added that on there. All right, any questions? Let me ask this. Did anybody at least have fun with these? Thank you, Anderson. Man, give your discipler a pat on the back. (laughs) Cheesy, cheesy. The judges won! We're going to come back to that one next week. We'll kick things off with that. Stink, I forgot I skipped over that. Cuz I had like a whole bunch of like PowerPoint slides to help. Did anybody get that answer by the way? That one's pretty. That one you do need some cross-referencing skills and All right, we'll come back. We'll start with that one next week. Let's pray.